HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. It's a better egg made from plants. Bring more customers in your doors with Just Egg. Start with a free sample at ju.st slash hrn. This week's episode of Meat in 3 is inspired by the reemergence of Cicada Brood 10. We're talking all about insects. Some people are calling crickets the gateway bug because that's a great introduction to what edible insects is all about. So we found detectable levels of cesium-137 in 68 of 122 total honey samples that we had. Ah, what is that? Is it tarantula? No, what is it? It's a tarantula. Oh, and they're going to eat it? No, 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 no. Listen to Meat in 3 wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Eli Sussman, and this is The Line on Heritage Radio Network. For those of you who are longtime listeners, thanks for staying with the show throughout COVID. And if this is the first time tuning into an episode, well, welcome. I'm a chef and co-owner of Samisa Restaurant, and you may have also seen the hospitality industry memes I make over at my Instagram account, The Sussmans. Well, the last year has been intense and insane and resulted in the closing of the original Samisa in Brooklyn, I am beyond thrilled to share that I've opened a new location of Samisa in Midtown Manhattan inside the world-famous 30 Rockefeller Center. This episode was the first episode that I've conducted in person since early 2020, and so it was fitting and surreal to speak to my guest in person inside my new restaurant. This episode features Chef Todd Richards, the founder of the Soulful Company Restaurant Group in Atlanta, which includes Lake and Oak Neighborhood Barbecue, Soul Food and Culture, and the upcoming Kuro. He is also the author of Soul, a chef's culinary evolution in 150 recipes, and the host of his own HRN podcast, Soul by Chef Todd Richards. We recorded this episode live at Samisa while Todd was in New York doing research for his next cookbook. We discuss how he started his career, the mentors that have shaped his work, and his own approach to mentoring and management. In light of the current labor shortage across the entire industry, Todd shared his insight on pricing food and taking care of his employees with fair wages, retirement plans, opportunities for ownership, and more. 
We also talk about catering to dietary restrictions and food allergies of guests and chefs, including Todd's own, and why they present an opportunity to keep challenging yourself and expanding and changing the menu. Now, on to the episode. This is a special episode of The Line. We're actually recording it inside my restaurant, uh, Samisa, inside Rockefeller Center. So if you hear some background noises, if you hear the hum of the drink machine, that's what's going on. It's the first time that I've ever recorded an episode from inside the restaurant. And I'm very excited to be joined by Chef Todd. Todd, thanks for being here. I am glad to be here, but I'm going to tell you as soon as I walked in, the delicious aroma almost <laughs> knocked me down. I was like, I am so hungry right now. So I'm glad we are recording in your restaurant. We're, we'll get you some food as soon as we're done recording. Uh, so you're visiting New York. You are, you're not a New York-based chef. Uh, you reside in Atlanta, and you've got a hospitality group there. You've got a lot of restaurant projects, and we're going to cover it all. But let's start off with why are you in New York? What brought you to this city? What are you working on right now? Uh, first of all, I love New York. I haven't been here in a year, of course, because of the pandemic. Uh, but I'm working on a new book uh, called Black, White, and Church All Over. And I'm doing a lot of research on my on the book, you know, understanding uh, places that we really can't visit during COVID. So going, you know, to little Haiti, uh, ha- hanging out with uh, my friend Pierre Tom last night, uh, really just trying to understand more background for the book and really want it to be true to form and not just things I have created in my head. So for folks that have never uh, seen your first book, uh, your first cookbook is called Soul, right? That is correct. And uh, talk a little bit about that. It's 150 recipes. What does it cover? What, what type of cuisine is it? What is the breadth of the recipes that it covers? And, uh, and how was that experience writing the, the first one? Obviously, you're doing another one. It couldn't have been that bad of an experience, but it is incredibly challenging to write a cookbook, to distill all these ideas down into real workable recipes. So what was the impetus for, for writing the cookbook? And, and talk a little bit about the, the, the structure of it. You know, I wrote Soul as a modern interpretation of soul food. Because I believe that if you look at a lot of the cookbooks uh, covering soul food, um, not to say that they're dated, but there's no visual element that goes along with it. Uh, There's nothing that it became more creative except for the standard soul food recipes. And I wanted to lend this modern voice to this repertoire of dishes. And I use, you know, a person like David Chang as a good example for it, that when you look at what Korean food has exploded around the world and and you understand that the price of food goes up, you know, because of this explosion, that that way I can really change the economics for soul food as well. Understanding that a pot of collard greens takes three days before it takes, you know, really tastes great. When you look at something like a steak that takes five minutes, what is the value between the steak and the collard greens? They should be on the same platform when you understand the the time it takes to to make that dish, as well as understanding that collard greens are not just one thing. Collard greens are really uh, a versatile green that you can use many different ways. And it's an iconic dish in soul food and in southern food, collard greens. So I really want to show the versatility of those dishes. We also want to be a, a mentor and inspire more black chefs in order to not just keep cooking in the same um, manner and form. There's nothing wrong with it. It's really a great historical standpoint, and the food is delicious. But there's modern ways that you can look at things, like a waffle, that we put collard greens in our waffles, so it's a collard green waffle that we have. 
uh, understanding, you know, how much lamb is really in soul food cuisine. Most people would not contribute lamb to being part of that repertoire of dishes, but it is. I mean, it's, you know, if you think lamb, goat, you think about the Caribbean, it's really part of those repertoire of dishes as well. Uh, the writing process was great. Uh, it was something I never did before. I, I look forward to, you know, to continue doing the second book right now. I, I would say during the process, though, you don't sleep. Uh, you know, as a chef and, and, and opening restaurants, you know, most of my writing is done between 12 uh, a.m. and 5 in the morning. Uh, and this book is really going to be great. It has over 180 recipes in it, so it's more 30 more than what Seoul has. And it's covering uh, really the, the long-lasting uh, effects of West African cuisine in Americas, whether you're talking about Honduras or uh, Haiti or the Southern cuisine in the South, we're really talking about you know the origin of a lot of the food ways in, in Americas is coming out of West Africa. You made a really interesting point about food costs and about time it takes to make dishes and just almost uh, the customer interpretation of, of value. So I want to talk about this a little bit in the context of soul food. So uh, you talked about things that that take a long time, like collard greens. Um, has there been an education process for you as you've been opening up your restaurants in regards to customers and pricing about how long dishes take or your sourcing style and why maybe your dishes are more expensive than they are at other restaurants that they've been to before, or maybe another restaurant in Atlanta that they consider a soul food restaurant. Mm -hmm. um, has that been has that been a, an easy process? How have you how have you educated customers if that's what you have done, and and what has that response been when maybe your price point is is higher or or, or not higher? Well, the education part starts with the staff, you know, first and getting them to understand where our, a lot of our ingredients come from. You look at our brisket, our brisket comes from a farm in Virginia, you know, so it's pretty local to, to Atlanta. Atlanta doesn't grow a lot of dairy, but of course, or cows, but you understand that, you know, that to have a farm from Virginia where we get all our brisket sourced from uh, is really something unique to a barbecue restaurant. And is it a better, uh, higher price point? Naturally, it is. We pay probably more, about 30 cents more per pound than most people would pay for, for brisket. Uh, our rub is different. You know, we use a, a coffee, uh, black pepper, and then a whole bunch of other spices in our rub for that same brisket. So, you know, just our natural cost for seasoning is higher. Uh, does that mean that we have to eat the cost? No. I mean, I, we have to pass that cost on in order to... Um, stay open first of all you know and and but we also tell our staff to make sure that we're telling people the process uh, of what is and where it comes from uh, do people you know shun at pricing you know i thought before the pandemic they would uh i've seen in the pandemic that we really rarely have anyone complain about pricing uh, from uh, our menu pricing but also, you know, when people do ask that question, I also talk about what we pay our staff. We pay our staff more than most restaurants would. Uh, we open um, Seoul and we open uh, Lake and Oak Neighborhood Barbecue and our staff have 401k automatically. It automatically starts for them, you know, from day one. Uh, we're working on healthcare for our staff. Um, we, our wages, like I said, are, are higher. I mean, the average uh, cashier at Seoul makes 13.50 an hour which is in Atlanta, you know, compared to New York is different, but you know, in Atlanta, they make 13.50 an hour and that's the minimum they're gonna uh, make because as they increase in tips, they wages go up. Uh, 
So there's a lot of things that we do differently that we have to support our staff. If our staff is working two, three, you know, jobs, which is commonplace in the restaurant industry, then we're not going to get the best result out of our staff. And so when people complain, I, I explain it to them just like I'm explaining to you now. I pay my staff more. Um, you know, we offer them 401k. We source ingredients as local as possible. And that's what it is. This leads into a discussion that everyone in the hospitality industry is having owners, also workers, which is about staffing shortages and people making determinations post-COVID about whether they want to be a part of this industry and whether it's a equitable industry and whether, uh, you know, we treat our employees as owners fairly. And obviously you've, you've talked about uh, offering incentives, a 401k and, and other uh, economic incentives to get people to come back to work. What's going on on the ground in Atlanta right now uh, with either a shortage or not a shortage of cooks in New York? There's a lot of trouble having um, restaurants having trouble hiring. And I'm curious what's going on in Atlanta with people that um, are reopening and also that pivoted and are, are expanding their already open businesses. Uh, what are you hearing from some of your contemporaries about, uh, about the industry moving forward and emerging out of COVID in the next six or eight months? Well, being in Georgia, uh, Georgia has been open for a very long time mm -hmm. uh, in comparison to the rest of the country. Uh, we open uh, Lake and Oak Neighborhood Barbecue on July 2nd, which is the busiest weekend for a barbecue restaurant, naturally. Uh, there is a staff shortage prior to COVID in Atlanta, and it's uh, probably uh, times 10 right now. Uh, we've had restaurateurs doing $500 signing bonuses to get people to come in, uh, and it's not going to change. Uh, one thing that we have in Atlanta is this explosion of tech jobs and things like that, which a lot of support systems have to go to that. So, you know, like Google has a restaurant there, they're paying cooks, you know, $17, $18 an hour. They can afford for it to do so. So there's an imbalance already there. And we already have a low unemployment rate in, in Atlanta. What we're also finding that is difficult is that the front of the house staff have moved on. Usually I can understand the back of the house staff, you know, took warehouse job or something like that, uh, you know, became a driver for UPS or things like that. But the crisis is more, even more in the front of the house where you, there's no bartenders, there's no career servers out there that much anymore. And then we had a policy where we lost a lot of our immigrant workers, you know, through our former president, as well as some of the, the rules they put in in Georgia. So we do have a crisis in, a, in Atlanta proper uh, of a shortage. Um, and Georgia has a shortage of, uh, at all. Even from an agricultural standpoint, they have a shortage of workers. The long-term outcome, I believe, is going to change soon. Um, not soon enough for us. We, we delayed opening our restaurant because of uh, staff shortages. Uh, I don't think that it's going to change uh, this year, probably next year. I think we'll have a bounce back of workers coming back. For a very long time, you ran other people's restaurants, and then you decided that you wanted to open up your own places. Uh, once you open up your own place, you go from having all the roles, the, all the responsibilities, all the headaches of being an executive chef, but you also have all the business ownership roles as well. It's been a long time that you've had your own places now. I'm curious, what roles do you find most fulfilling as both an executive chef and an owner of your business? Are there things that 
you've learned to love? Are there things that still to this day you don't really like them as tasks as a business owner? And, um, and how do you also, how do you lead now that you have multiple projects uh, open and opening more things? Fortunately, in my career, I worked at the Ritz-Carlton for three different properties. And understanding that, you know, the model is we're ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen is something that I really bring into the restaurant. My uh, number one job uh, is to protect the assets of the company. And the most important asset uh, outside of the physical building is the staff. So I spend a lot of my time focusing on the staff making sure that they're trained, that they need things and, and move those things. And then in turn, they are to focus on the customer. Uh, it is difficult uh, sometimes understanding how many different hats you have to wear on a given day. My day starts early, usually around six in the morning. Uh, I'm usually done about 11 o'clock at night because I have multiple hats. You know, I have to talk to the accounting department, make sure that all the merchant services, you know, credit cards got, got ran, the batches got run. You know, talk to HR to make sure that employees are doing well. Uh, but then there's also the guests that want interaction with you as, as well, which is, again, uh, you know, the public relations side of the business, which I think that most people understand that chefs are quote unquote celebrities, but I don't think they understand how much work it takes for us to become those celebrities. Uh, that, you know, like I said, my day is six days a week, you know, 6 a.m. to 11. On the seventh day, you know, we close our restaurant at seven, so I'm usually done earlier on Sunday. But that's just the way, way it is in order to be successful. Uh, we don't, uh, we fortunately, you know, did not have a bad COVID season. Uh, we were pretty busy in our restaurants. Uh, Lake and Oak was probably five different restaurants at one time, you know, it was to go, you know, then it became to go and half open, you know, uh, to go uh, fully open on a patio. Then we had winter season, so we came you know, to go, back to go only. Uh, the city was closed, so we just got our liquor license. So now we're a full service restaurant. So just being able to be versatile is the uh, best thing I can give to anyone who runs a company that you have to wear many hats, but you have to be versatile. And most importantly, you have to hire the right people. I want to talk about mentorship and also just continuing to build out a team for the future. The best way to continue to open projects is to nurture people from within. And as they, you know, maybe max out their potential at a certain property, maybe you co-open a restaurant with them or you open a restaurant and move them over there. So. What are your, what are your um, some of your techniques that you use to grow people within the company? How do you make them feel right from when they start out that they're part of something maybe bigger, that there's, that there's potential for them to grow? And then after you talk about yourself a little bit, I would love to hear about some of your mentors that really helped you grow. Um, I'm specifically asking about maybe Daryl Evans or other people that you want to touch on that uh, have been important in your career in helping you cultivate and develop your leadership and mentor style. You know, Chef Evans is probably the single um, most responsible for my career. He took a, a kid that knew nothing really about cooking, but uh, in a restaurant sense, but had a lot of uh, passion and was a nerd, and, you know, in the sense that anyone who calls me a nerd, that's the biggest compliment they can give me. Uh, I, I love that title. And he taught me perseverance, 
which I believe that most people don't understand that chefs have to have perseverance uh, in order to become great. Uh, it's not the 99 great customers that drive us crazy. It's that one customer that we could do nothing in the world to, to satisfy, which keeps us up at night. Uh, and then when I understand his career, uh, being you know first black chef to compete in the Culinary Olympics, uh, to win four gold, two silver medals, uh, they did not believe that when he took his uh, test for the Culinary Olympics that he did the work himself. So they flew him all the way to Germany to make him do the test all over again. Uh, that is the kind of unrelenting racism that happens in the culinary field that most people may not even know exists. But when you see someone like him persevere through that and then teach that kitchen, uh, and at that time we were at the Four Seasons Hotel. So it's myself, Dwayne Nutter, Dave Turner, uh, John Bills, uh, Daryl Schuler. Daryl Schuler is the first black uh, certified master chef in, in, in the world. Uh, uh, Benara Page, all, you know, seven of us all came out of that one kitchen. All of us are either executive chefs or owners of restaurants. Uh, chef Schuler just opened up his own culinary school. You understand that one man changed the lives of seven, uh, seven men uh, all by himself. And we all in gratitude for him. He died way, way, way too young. Uh, but his legacy lives on through, through us. As far as mentoring goes, you know, right now in our group, uh, our GMs and our executive chefs come in with some type of ownership. Because we expect them to treat the place like they own it. Then why shouldn't they have some type of ownership in it? And as our lease goes, we increase their value uh, in ownership. Uh, moving forward. And that to me is the best model moving forward because I expect them to treat it like they own it and they should actually own it if I expect that from them. Yeah, it actually mirrors what, you know, tech companies and other larger, more traditional companies have been able to accomplish, which is, you know, they offer people incentive to stay by giving them stock options. And it sounds like that's what you're doing with your restaurant. Uh, how, have you be, how have you been able to create that system? What's the infrastructure and structure of your company like? You do have a partner, uh, Chef Lee, right? And, yes. and, yeah. uh, and beyond the two of you, what's the leadership hierarchy you know, C-suite level of your, of your company look like? And how have you been able to, to build that out? Was that a difficult process to go from, you know, just a traditional restaurant model, which is like, I'm a chef and I own it, to we're going to be putting these things in action, healthcare, 401ks, uh, you know, co-ownership by our staff so that you can build what sounds to be a true lasting company that can really be around for an extremely long time. Well, one thing is uh, I look young, but I'm not, <laughs> you know, I'll be 50 this year, which is still relatively young. Um, but I really want to make sure that there is a strong restaurant legacy that comes out of this group. Uh, we know that most restaurants don't stay around for, for a very long time, but we, we plan to be. A lot of our leases are over, over 10 years. Uh, so we plan, you know, naturally have to be around for a very long time. But the infrastructure is, you no. Know, it's Josh, myself. We have another uh, partner, uh, Stephanie Williams, who handles HR. Uh, Mikhail Williams, who is her husband, who handles a lot of the financial side of things. And that's really great for us because then that, I don't have to really focus my energy totally on all those things. And then there's layers of, of uh, 
places where employees can go. You know, uh, naturally, uh, you know, we see um, our, our female employees talk to Stephanie a lot about things that they want to discuss. Uh, and it was really important to me to make sure that we have uh, balance in our company, that, that, uh, that we have a safe place for women to go in, in our company. Uh, and I will always continue that. I am a, a, a firm believer. Uh, anyone who knows me knows that I don't play that uh, women just stay in the pantry in, in my kitchens. They are to work every single station. They need to know every single station. I, I can't talk about um, civil rights without including the, the women's movement in our restaurant group. And those things are very important to me. And I make sure that if we're going to uh, promote that everyone has the same equal opportunity to do so. Let's build on that a little bit and talk about this last year in terms of civil rights and human rights and, uh, you know, what has been going on in the United States with the Black Lives Matter movement and protests all around the United States after the murder of George Floyd in Atlanta and within your restaurant group and within the hospitality community. What has the last year looked like for you? What has it felt like? You know, last year was a difficult year anyway for everyone. I, I had COVID uh, last year. Uh, well, yeah, last year. And I got sick March 30th and had long lasting effects all the way through December. Uh, so I understand just in understanding personally what COVID did. Then you, you add things like civil uh, disobedience, you know, because of senseless shootings uh, throughout the country. Uh, senseless killings throughout the country. And it wanes on you a lot. Uh, it, it, there seems to be no end in sight, you know, for, for these things that are happening. And that's when I really focus on my staff even more to make sure that they are, first of all, uh, what are they going through on their daily lives? Uh, are we giving them the best opportunity, you know, uh, we're open six days a week. You know, we just you know, got our uh, linen company to get uniforms for all the kitchen staff, so they're not washing these things themselves. Because uh, you imagine, you know, in a, in a restaurant, you know, the, the shirts are dirty all the time. You know, they get they get smoky. We have a barbecue restaurant; they're smoky and everything like that. Let's take that cost away from the, from them, and we'll do it ourselves, and we'll budget and find a way to pay for it. I, so it really made me focus on my staff even more. Uh, to make sure that they had a safe place to go. Uh, you know, we went to credit card only because the exchange of money uh, was not a safe thing to do with COVID. But also, it wasn't safe to have that much cash in the restaurants, you know, anymore. Uh, to have a server, you know, be on the bus carrying cash, that's not a safe place. Also, you know, being pulled over by a police officer and you're walking out, you have this wad of cash in, in your hand. You can say you're a server, but they may not believe you. So we had to take these steps to ensure that the staff was safe and also had to create a safe haven for them, a respite, to not have to deal with those things. Uh, we turned the TV off in the restaurant. Uh, we changed the music in our restaurant to make it a more welcoming environment for the staff. And then when they wanted to go and protest and they wanted to do those things, we supported them 100%. Uh, and there's many different ways that we have to fight this battle. You know, my way is to make sure that their wages are, are higher than everyone else, give them you know, 401k, work on healthcare that we're doing right now. 
to do things that the average restaurant you know, doesn't do or may not have the opportunity to do. Uh, does it cut into profit? Yes, 100%. But like I said, our leases are very long. And to me, that's the way I'm fighting this battle by giving our community more opportunity to be successful. Uh, there's many ways to do it. A lot of people don't understand that how my way of doing it is, is different. But when you look at the wages, the average wage for a restaurant employee, and you see that we're paying 25, 30% above wages, uh, we're doing all these things. We're changing the lives of our community. We're going to take a quick break. Stick with us here on Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. You can't have plant-based breakfast without a plant-based egg. Just Egg is now the fastest growing egg brand in the United States. Bring more plant-based consumers in your doors with easy-to-use Just Egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st hrn. Made from plants, Just Egg is a better egg for you and for the planet. It's healthier, with no cholesterol and less saturated fat. And it's more sustainable. Just Egg uses less water and generates fewer carbon emissions. Most importantly, it's delicious. For our listeners who operate a food service establishment, you can get a sample for free. Head to ju.st slash hrn. Just Egg makes a delicious plant-based addition to any menu. It's available as a liquid scramble, great for omelets, frittatas, stir-fries, and French toast. There's also frozen, pre-baked, folded version that's ideal for filling breakfast sandwiches or topping salads. Chef Jose Andreas calls Just Egg mind-blowing, and Bon Appetit says, It's so good, I feel guilty eating it. Put the fastest-growing egg brand on your menu. Get a free sample of Just Egg for your restaurant at ju.st hrn. Welcome back to The Line on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Eli Sussman, and on today's episode, I'm speaking with Chef Todd Richards, the founder of the Soulful Company Restaurant Group based in Atlanta, and the author of Soul, A Chef's Culinary Evolution in 150 Recipes. He joined me in person in New York City while researching his upcoming cookbook. Now, on to the second half of the episode. Can you talk about your partnership with uh, Joshua Lee? How did you guys come together? Where was the first place that you kind of overlapped and started working? And what did those initial back of the napkin discussions sound and look like when you were sitting together and said, we should do something together? What, did, what were those first ideas? So Josh and I worked at um, a uh, restaurant group. Um, he was at Max Lagers, I was at White Oak. And we you know, became friends really, really quickly. And uh, when I left the group and went to, back to the airport, uh, he came along with me and ran Chicken and Beer, uh, which is part owned by Ludacris. Um, it's still one of the best restaurants in, in the airport to go, to go and eat. But uh, when COVID happened, uh, uh, we were both out of work, sort of. I was still working, but he wasn't. And then I got COVID. 
And I know that I got sick from being in the airport and I said, I'm not going back in there to work. And I was at home, a good real estate uh, agent friend of mine called and said, hey, I have this place, I want you to take a look at. And I couldn't even leave the house. I could barely answer the phone. I called Josh, I said, Josh, hey, go take a look at this place and see if this is going to be a good fit for us. You know, if we you know, really wanted to do something. And within 15 minutes, he called me back and said, we have to do it. I said, okay, well, let's just do it, <laughs> you know? And it really just started, started that way. Um, uh, with hopes, prayers, uh, credit cards, and, and, and borrowing money from family, we got the place open. And from there, we haven't looked back. Those back in the napkin conversations still happen. Um, they, I think that's the best way to get real things done, is to really sit down without you know, a true agenda of what the outcome is going to be. Uh, when we go into a restaurant and look for a new restaurant space, I have no clue what the restaurant is going to be until actually walk into the space. And we'll sit there, we'll sit there for hours. We'll throw things against the wall. What if we do this, do that? And then we have the final outcome. And it's been a pretty successful way for us to, to get restaurants going. And I don't think we're gonna change it at all. In addition to the restaurants that, uh, the brick and mortars that you have, you also uh, have these concepts in the airport, right? And those are under Jackmont Hospitality, mm, which correct. is a, a different company that you are, are you the culinary director? Well, for? former culinary director. I, 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 did, I did resign my position. As you, as you open more restaurants, you can't serve two masters. You know? yeah. I, I was, okay, well, I was gonna ask you, how do you, how do you manage all that? No, but I no. guess it became a little uh, unruly. Well, they, well, you know, they, they got a vaccine, but they haven't gotten uh, cloning down yet, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you can only be in about three places at once, right, not right. five places at once. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your childhood. So you grew up in Chicago. You spent a lot of time in Arkansas. Now you're in Atlanta. Um, can you talk about your early childhood? Were you a, a food lover from the start? Did you have dreams and aspirations of having a different career entirely? And you sort of fell backwards into food. You didn't go to culinary school. So how did you end up uh, becoming a, a chef that ran kitchens at the Four Seasons and now owns several restaurants? You know, my family, every birthday, holiday, Christmas was always at our house. I mean, there was times there would be 100 people at our house. Uh, and we prepared the food. Uh, my mom was not a, a great cook, but her repertoire of dishes were fantastic. My dad did a lot of the cooking, uh, especially when it came to smoking meats and things like that. So we were known for that for a very long time. My dad worked overnight uh, from 8 p.m. to 8 a.m., uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. Uh, and so a lot of times we were in this, the building was a little bit north of Chinatown in Chicago. So we would definitely go to you know, have dinner with him before he went to work and things like that. And there was no cuisine that was off, off limits. We ate everywhere uh, in a downtown area. And, and so I always was around food. Uh, uh, when I was in uh, high school, I went to uh, high school and college at the same time. And then went to the University of Illinois at Chicago. I was a physics major and I was transferring to Georgia Tech. Uh, but I was done with college. I've been in college environment, you know, for six years already. I was just really done with it. I stumbled into a grocery store, said they need someone to cut meat. Well, I've been cutting meat since I was a kid. I mean, I've been working with my dad doing it, you know, chickens, you know, uh, ribs, it doesn't matter to me, steaks. And we, I, we cut our, a lot of our own meat and they gave me a test. I passed it and they hired me. And across the street was another, it was a restaurant called Blue Ribbon Grill. They need someone to work the grill at night. So I did Kroger, you know, butchering in the morning. I did the grill over there at night. And the chef there, Chef Eddie, uh, his wife, 
uh, Joni was working with Chef Evans and Eddie told me something uh, one night. She said, I have nothing more for you to learn. It's time for you to go. And he gave me Chef Evans' number and really I didn't even look back from, from, from that. I mean, that takes a lot of guts uh, of a chef to tell someone you have to leave. That is no longer here, uh, you're going to uh, be. Uh, he said, I see greatness in you, but I can't teach you anything else. And within three weeks, I was gone. Yeah, it's amazing that they would have the, the foresight to be able to kick you out the door and say, yeah. you're an amazing worker. Yeah. You do everything great here, but I can't hold you back anymore. Yeah. So where did you go next? And, so, and what was that progression like as you are gaining more skills with every single position that you obtain? Did you, did you then kind of lock on and say, oh, this is it for me. I'm definitely doing this. Uh, my parents were only in music school uh, when I was a kid. So if anyone knows about musicians, it's about practice. And there's this obsessive nature to everything that you do. And with food, it's creative, but it's also scientific as well, which I really enjoyed doing. I really enjoyed that, that balance of understanding um, the temperatures of things and, and why, you know, you got to start, you know, a steak in a hot pan, not a cold pan and things like that. It, was, it really felt like I was being my analytical side and my creative side, both at the same time. And, you know, from that, it was just a lot of studying, you know, when, you know, Iron Chef came on, you know, I was obsessed with Iron Chef. I, I watched every episode, you know, and then I started watching the Japanese episodes and, and, and they were speaking only Japanese. So I was trying to understand the language even, even more. So there's this obsessive nature that I have of excellence. And food to me is that medium where you can be creative and scientific, but it, also I have to warn people that it's an insane art form as well. Because we put food on the plate, you dress it up as beautiful as possible, and you never see it again. It leaves your hand, and it is deteriorating as it's leaving your hand. And you try to repeat it over and over and over again, but it's never gonna come back. And so I warn people about that in a sense that it can drive you crazy a little bit if you if you allow it to. That's why we have you know a lot of you know drugs and alcoholism and in our business because our art form is kind of insane. And I know you're gonna ask me this about the mental health side of it, but you know chefs have to have good mental health uh, in order to be great as well because if not, it will consume you. You know you have to find a good balance and outlet you know, for that, whether it's sports, mine is music, you know, I, you know, I go home at night, I'm putting on music, I have a huge record collection, uh, I still DJ a lot, that's my outlet, you know, to, to get another art form that is not so fleeting uh, when I'm done plating. In terms of creativity and creating dishes and having constraints, so, you know, the, a lot of the things that can inform a menu are, okay, what's well, going to sell well. But now we also have to be considering uh, dietary restrictions, allergies, uh, a, lot of, a lot of different things that have sprung up in the last decade, which is people removing certain things from their diets, either from an allergy perspective or just being focused more on health. So I'm curious if there's anything on your menu that informs those decisions, any changes that you've made, uh, any personal 
things that you don't eat that you've been tinkering with in order to uh, add things to your menu? It, it's kind of crazy to be a chef and have food allergies, <laughs> you know? Uh, most people don't know that. I mean, with lobster, number one, is the worst allergy for me. Uh, if I have one bite, I'm going to be on the ground, uh, out. Uh, I would say that uh, dairy is another allergy that I have. I can't really have lactose. If I do it, I'm going to be stuffed up for days, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, egg, you know, is something I developed an allergy to. Uh, in the last three years. And it was nothing that, I mean, I love eggs. I eat eggs every day, scrambled, soft, a little bit of black pepper, uh, goat cheese, a glass of champagne and toast. That's my breakfast, you know, <clears throat> and oatmeal. I mean, I'm a big oatmeal fan as well. So being uh, a chef that has these allergies, I'm sensitive to people when they say they have them. Uh, most of our menus are, are gluten-free except for bread. Uh, even at Seoul, which is a fried chicken sandwich place, it, 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 it's gluten-free. We use uh, potato starch. We don't use AP flour. Uh, there's no uh, real gluten at barbecue restaurants except for the bread and, of course, mac and cheese, you know. But really, you have to listen to guests and also informing that menu because it's not going to stop. You know, people are developing more allergies to food. As we process things more, people are gonna naturally develop these allergies and you have to be conscious of them. Uh, I'm conscious of them because like I said, one of my favorite foods in the world to eat, I can't eat anymore. <laughs> you know, I, I would literally eat scrambled eggs, you know, every single day and I can't eat them anymore. Well, I can now, but not in the same form. And so uh, you've been experimenting with this product, right? Yes. And it's been, it's been, I assume, a unique process of trying to recraft egg-based dishes with something that is not made of egg. So can you talk a little bit about that and how you're incorporating like modern it's, technology? It's, 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 been, it's been so exciting to use Just Egg. I mean, and, and I probably stood up here, no one can see us here, but I stood up and talking about this product. Because uh, for me, who is an egg lover, I can eat eggs again. Uh, I was uh, recently at home and made the frittata, which I love frittata because they just, you know, you can carry around with them, uh, you know, you know, as a chef on the run, you know, it's easy to make. And like, I couldn't tell the difference. Actually, to me, it tastes better than the egg because, you know, sometimes when you make it for tile, it can still be soft in the middle. This firmed up really quickly. I put potatoes, shallots, uh, uh, thyme, black pepper in it, and it was so delicious. I mean, it was, so I know for me, if it was delicious for me, then it's delicious for everyone else. Uh, a lot of times people really don't know that they have allergies. They just know if I keep eating something, that something happens, bad happens, and they assume that it's an allergy. And it could be other factors inside of it. But for me, a person who knows I have these allergies, to be able to return back to a food that I love, that was part of an early morning ritual uh, for me, uh, it's so fantastic. It, it, it just gave me such a, 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 a calmness that I've had other you know, uh, plant-based egg products they weren't as good. They didn't taste as good. Um, they were gooey. This feels, tastes, texture like an egg to me. And I'm so, so happy to use the product. Yeah, as someone who also can't really do lactose, unfortunately, and it used to be such a big part of my life yeah. and trying to find those substitutions, I actually think that it's very exciting as a cook and as a chef to have access now to all these new products, uh, plant-based meats and plant-based dairy that uh, can really 
open up a new world for us if we use them properly. Obviously, you have a lot of barbecue restaurants, and we're seeing prices of meat skyrocket Absolutely. across the board. Um, it's it's almost becoming cost prohibitive to serve meat. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the price of chicken wings have gone up, I think about 5X or 6X in mm -hmm. the nation in the past year. Brisket has doubled or gone up by a couple bucks a pound. So since you own a restaurant that has so many meat items, is this something that you are talking about all the time? Are you considering adding plant-based barbecue items? How does that influence your decisions when you own a restaurant that is, what I would assume, is focused on meat? We are actually changing our menu uh, right now, and we're adding more vegetable options. One thing is the guests are asking for it. Mm -hmm. I mean, they really, you know, they love the smoke taste and, uh, of, of things, but they're asking for more options. Uh, we added, we're adding another salad to the menu, our, our cob salad, which is really popular. Uh, someone wanted something a little bit smaller and lighter. Uh, we're adding a different salad to the menu. Uh, we use a lot of vegetables in our cooking anyway, so it's not that difficult for us to, to change that. Uh, we, on our brisket sandwich, we top it with uh, smoked onions and arugula uh, on that sandwich. We have a lady that comes in all the time. She doesn't want the brisket. She just wants a grilled cheese with the smoked onions and arugula, you know? And it, it, it makes sense, you know, for, for us because we smoke the peppers, you know, for the pimento cheese. So it's really not a pivot for us or a hard pivot for us. It's something that we enjoy doing anyway. And we all know with meat, you can eat meat and be fatigued from it, you know? Uh, and having something that's alive, you know, knowing that the farmers like Bobby Britt's gonna bring us tomatoes and carrots, um, or Love is Love Farm, which is literally less than a mile away from us, you know, is growing, uh, you know, banana peppers and jalapenos and all our fresh herbs. It gives us a sense of neighborhood, which is in the name of the restaurant, like in Oak Neighborhood Barbecue. And it's really important that we're supporting the neighborhood as well. And they don't grow, you know, chickens and things like that. They grow vegetables. So it's also a responsibility for us as an owner to support the neighborhood. And if the farmers have it, we're going to serve it. As you look forward, not backwards anymore, as we look forward to the next couple years, uh, what things are you planning? What are you dreaming up? And uh, how excited are you about what the potential is for your restaurant group um, in Georgia and maybe as you expand to other cities or, or, or even just within Atlanta, um, anything that you can share that you're excited about and, you know, what are you dreaming up? Where's your brain going over the next couple of years? Uh, I am planning for retirement. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I am doing all this uh, to retire. Uh, mm -hmm. um, I, I, if I don't have an end in, in sights, I will keep going. So I gave myself somewhere between uh, 60 and 62, which is 10 years, uh, 10 to 12 years to retire. I, I don't, uh, does that mean I'm not gonna be involved in the restaurant? No, but I believe at, at some point you have to turn it over to someone else. And I'm planning on turning that over to someone else uh, who can uh, take my place and, and operate the, the future of the restaurants. What's exciting to me uh, in that process is really developing a company that uh, holds true to the values that my parents taught me. Uh, you know, the simple value of treat someone like you want to be treated. I mean, that's holds true. Uh, kindness, uh, 
supportive of neighborhood and community, and uh, excellence. Uh, my mom was a biologist. Uh, my dad was a data processor. Uh, that old school war games movie where you saw that big tape, my, my dad was one of those guys. But they always had fun. They always went out, they uh, uh, had card parties, they, they went to plays and to shows. And so it's really uh, making this group a great place to work and to be a part of, but also that we have a place where we can have balance as well. Uh, and I'm looking forward to, to, to that being part of our mission for our restaurant group. It starts with me. And that's why I've, you know, we've added on people uh, to our executive team in order to do so, so that we all have balance, that we all, when it's time to have a vacation, no one calls you. And, you know, if you, someone's calling you while you're on vacation, then you're not on vacation. You know, that's the way I believe it. Uh, and so, you know, are we going to uh, make it that way? Well, if we don't, we're the ones in charge, we're the ones that own the company, so we can make that pivot moving forward. But my emphasis on it is really planning on retiring. You know, how am I going to set this company up for success in order to pass it on to the next person uh, so I can get my pilot's license and fly around the world? Chef, thank you so much for speaking with me. Uh, I know you've got a very busy schedule here in New York City, and of course you've got a lot of projects at home. Can you shout out where people can go and find you, your Instagram, uh, the hospitality group or the restaurant group websites? Let everybody know when they're in the Atlanta area how they can get in touch with you and eat your food. Well, the best way to get in touch with me is always come to the restaurants because I'm always there. Um, if you want my email address, don't worry about it because I don't check my email anyway, so you're not going to get that. <laughs> but you can find me at, at Chef Todd Richards on all social media platforms. Uh, Lake and Oak Neighborhood Barbecue is in a really exciting place uh, in Atlanta. It's about six blocks away from East Lake Golf Course, where the PGA will be this year. So if you're in town for that, you can stop and see us there. Seoul is in the center of Prague uh, Market. Uh, on the Beltline, our new restaurant, Kuro, which will be opening in about six weeks, is on the Beltline as well. So if you know where the Beltline is, you can find us anywhere in Atlanta. And you've got a podcast as well that I would love for you to shout out. Yeah, so uh, in, in keeping up with the Soul theme, uh, my uh, podcast is Soul by Todd Richards on HRN. Uh, I'm a big fan of HRN before I even uh, got on here. And now that I'm on here, I'm a bigger fan. And when is the new cookbook coming out? Uh, new cookbook, um, it's funny. Um, we are, have a new publisher, you know, already, uh, which is great. And so the new book will be out fall of 2022. Busy man. Well, you know, it's relative. <laughs> Chef Todd Richards, thank you so much uh, for being a uh, member of the HRN family and also for speaking with me today for this special live episode of The Line from my restaurant in Rockefeller Center. Uh, best of luck to you with all the endeavors coming out in the next year. Can't wait to come down to Atlanta and check out all your spots. Come on down. We'd love to have you. The line is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners just like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.